We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you to everyone who has left a review. It helps other people find us. Now, one of the nicest comments was about how helpful my conversations were with my wise friends. What a beautiful way of putting it, because many of my witnesses do become friends, and I'm pleased to have one of them back this week. And fittingly, I'm returning to a familiar topic too, anxiety. Are you and your partner playing anxiety hot potato? If you don't know the game, it's a children's favourite where if you get the hot potato, you have to pass it on to someone else as quickly as possible. If you're holding the hot potato when the music stops, you're out. Avram Weiss is a psychotherapist and author of Hidden in Plain Sight, How Men's Fear of Women Shape Their Intimate Lives. And he's been studying how anxiety works in relationships and how couples try and pass it between them. So, how exactly does hot potato work as an, a game of anxiety between couples? I love your description of the game. I first started thinking about this when my wife woke me in the middle of the night because she had heard a noise that frightened her. I slept through it, and she sort of poked me and said, I heard something, at which point I got up and I went downstairs to look and see. I didn't see anything, and I came back to bed and went to sleep. What was interesting is we did not exchange other than her saying, I heard something. We did not. It was a soundless ballet. She understood that it was my job to get up and go check. And I understood that it was my. But we've never discussed this. So I started wondering, how did we both know our jobs when we have never, ever had a conversation in which (laughs) we said, look, if anything scary happens, it's your... Plus, you know, if there's an intruder in the house, I don't think I'm less likely to be shot than she is. How did we decide that it was safer for me to go downstairs and get shot than her to go? So I started thinking about it and thinking about how I see it in couples. And I I suspect that anxiety, like many other things, is not what it appears to be, but that it's highly colored by the gender role expectations. So we say that we know that women are diagnosed with anxiety disorders three times more often than men. But I started wondering, and I hope you and I will talk about, is that because women are actually three times more anxious than men? Or is that because of the social roles that we've been taught to play that make women look more anxious than men? So what you're saying is really the anxiety belongs between the couple Yes. In their relationship, but one person performs it and the other person rescues it. Am I hearing you right? I think that's really well said. And it's for anyone listening who's familiar with group dynamics. In a group, we often talk about one person holding a feeling for the group. And what we mean by that is that if it's a difficult feeling that people would prefer not to have, 
then often the group will unconsciously nominate one person to have the feeling so that the rest of the people in the group, it's essentially emotional scapegoating is what we're talking about. And so, of course, that happens in couples too. Feelings get assigned to one member or the other so that it protects the other person from having an unpleasant feeling. And let's face it, men are not allowed to be anxious. We can be brave, we can be angry, but, you know, anxious, well, you know, I'm thinking Woody Allen and not many people (laughs) want to be Woody Allen. Right. And we don't think of Woody Allen as masculine. So why is it more acceptable then for a man to pass his anxiety secretly to women? Well, I think you just named a big part of the reason why, because it's not socially acceptable for men to be anxious. This is something I explored a lot in the book about men's fears, which is what, you know, the title hidden in plain sight, because it's something that men recognize. As soon as you explain to a man, you know, it kind of sounds like you're afraid of your partner. Their first reaction is a pushback, but then they very quickly recognize that they are, in fact, afraid of their partner in a myriad of ways. And I would say the same thing about anxiety in men, that we're socialized to believe that never let them see you sweat, is the phrase. And so I think men don't even notice their own anxiety and are so accustomed to covering it and pretending that they don't have it. And women are accustomed then to thinking that men aren't anxious. And so when you say to women, well, he's behaving that way because he's anxious, it's usually as much of a surprise to a woman as it is to a man. It doesn't occur to women that the explanation is right in front of their face, which is, he's just like you, he gets anxious. I must admit, I've never thought of myself as an anxious person until I moved from England to Germany. And I got all sorts of anxieties about how the German system works. And I mean, because it's all entirely different. And I sort of realized that I had been anxious, but actually I managed my life in such a way that I never actually had to come up against the anxiety. Exactly. Beautifully said. And our world is set up in a way to protect men more than women from coming up against their anxieties. And most heterosexual relationships are set up that women are taught to protect men from experiencing their anxiety. So men don't know that they're anxious. There are a hundred ways in which women are taught to cushion men from feeling their own anxiety. Wow. Give me a couple of examples of that then. Well, I think the most obvious, the one that your listeners will most easily relate to is socially. Most men, when they divorce, are surprised to learn they have no friends because their wives have been managing the social relationships so seamlessly that the men don't even notice. The weekend comes along and somehow they have plans with friends. And it doesn't even occur to them. They think, oh, divorce means I get to get rid of this stuff I don't like and keep everything else. Well, they're very surprised often to learn that the people they've been thinking of as friends are, in fact, their wives' friends and that they don't really have an independent. And she's done it so seamlessly they don't even see it. Yep. I never realized that my father was very shy until my mother died because my mother was extrovert, could talk to anybody. And my father just followed on behind. And she did all the the social niceties and he just sort of cruised along. And he never really had to deal with his shyness because my mother was so good at it. 
And there you are, one of the closest people in, right? And you don't see it. And I think the reason is that women are very, very good at this. And they're taught to do it in ways that don't shame men. So they're taught to do it in ways that are very subtle and behind the scenes so that nobody will see what they're doing. Well, I have to say, on behalf of the women listening, I expect they're all shouting at us and saying, it's not fair. You know, anxiety is horrible. Why do I have to carry it? Well, it wouldn't be just the women. I would raise my hand and say, I agree it's not fair, but I'm going to add to why it's not fair. Nobody signs up for anxiety. You know, if you offer a, a free workshop for people on how to feel more anxious, I don't think anybody would come, <laughs> right? The world's least successful book. Well, I remember when we talked last time, you said you wanted to write a book on the joy of anger and that you thought it wouldn't sell anything. And I think the same thing, the joy of anxiety would not be. A, but here's the thing. You know, when people say to me, I just wish I didn't have any anxiety, I would say what you're describing is a sociopath. So mm. no anxiety, the inability to feel anxious. You know, Hannibal Lecter, the author, makes a big point in the first of the books, the title is Evading Me, Silence of the Lambs, of saying that, you know, Lecter was rigged up to an EEG machine. And as he killed the guard, there was no change in his heart rate. That's <laughs> what no anxiety looks like. So be careful what you ask for. So it may seem counterintuitive to say that it's not a good thing to be protected from your own anxiety, but people grow by challenging themselves. People grow by working through anxiety, by getting through difficult experiences. And if somebody's always protecting you and never letting you feel anxious, it limits the extent to which you can grow. So it certainly feels better to not have to feel anxious, but it's not really a good thing for you. Now, you were talking about how there was sort of like an unconscious contract between you and your yes. wife. And sometimes I think there can be a different unconscious contract. And that is that the woman knows that if her husband starts sort of disappearing off and shutting down and not being very interested, one of the ways of getting him back, getting his interest, is yeah. to present anxiety. Yes, absolutely. You're dead on. And the reason for that is that men are socialized to equate their value as a human being to how well they protect women and children. For example, even today, surprisingly, I will hear men say things like, oh, my wife doesn't have to work, as if somehow that were a statement about him which I think he thinks it is, he's saying, I provide so well that my wife doesn't have to work. And so you're absolutely right. So since men's primary defensive response when they're scared is withdrawal, women have learned, we've taught them in a sense, that when we withdraw, if they get anxious, our protective feelings get activated and we start coming back. And so we reinforce women, even though men complain about how high maintenance women are and how much anxious they are and how much work they take. We're the ones teaching them and reinforcing them that anxiety works almost every. And when it uh, extinguishes, of course, women have to get more anxious. When we stop responding, they just up the ante and get more anxious. And then men have been trained to turn their anxiety into anger. Yes. Yes. There are a lot of ways men are trained to not look anxious. And anger is absolutely one of them. 
Staying busy is another one for men. Staying productive and staying busy. I live in a place that is very often, when the summer, many, many tourists come here. And so I see a lot of people who are on vacation. And it's really interesting to watch them try to, they see the pace of the people who live here, which is pretty darn slow. And you can see them trying to lower their pace and they get anxious. You know, they don't have their things and devices and schedule and business. And you can just see how uncomfortable it's making them. So I think everybody, now they've spotted the game of anxiety, hot potato, you know, it's a good game for children, but it's not a good game for adults. So how do you bust out of the game? Well, I think men and women have different tasks in this. And for women, the task is to sort of learn to interrupt reflexively soothing men's anxiety and to leave them more to manage their own anxiety in the same way that parents of children who are, you know, a year or two away from leaving home have to learn how to not reflexively step in and take care of things for their children and learn to begin to turn it over to the children. I think for many women in heterosexual relationships, it's the same process. Like, you know what, he could probably figure this out on his own and it would be good for him to figure it out on his own, to do the growing that would be required. And I think for men is to begin to consider the possibility that they are, in fact, like every other human being on the planet, anxious from time to time, and to not be so frightened of it. Anxiety is an incredibly helpful indicator. If you didn't have the capacity to feel anxious, you wouldn't know when you were under stress. You wouldn't know when you were in a dangerous situation. You wouldn't know when you were in a situation that wasn't quite right. And so you've sort of dulled your antennae and to begin to work to value the capacity to feel anxious to a degree, obviously not to be paralyzed by it, but to be able to feel anxious when you are in fact anxious. My favorite question at the moment is, what is this feeling trying to tell me? Yeah. And what is the anxiety trying to tell you? What is not working for you? Yeah. I just got off the phone with a friend who's had a very bad case of vertigo, and he essentially was bedridden for more than a week. And he said to me, you know, I've been sitting on the porch and listening to the birds and watching the sunset and relaxing and joy, and I had to get vertigo to do that. So I think similarly, in this case, his body is saying to him, you need to take some time to slow down. And I think what anxiety tells you is something's not right. There's something going on that doesn't feel right to you. The way I know this most clearly is that I've been a sailor all my life. And ignoring anxiety on the ocean is a dangerous thing to do. Usually, you feel anxious because you're noticing the wind pick up, or you're seeing the clouds build up, or you're sort of sensing a boat coming up behind you. There are reasons you're feeling anxious, and ignoring them can actually be quite dangerous. And what if both partners are feeling anxious. You know, I have had couples where they're sort of competing of who's most likely to have the panic attack. And, you know, these are terrible things to be in. What do you do when sort of almost they're both competing to be in that position? That's a really helpful question, because I think the assumption, and it's an unconscious assumption that most couples make is, if you and I are a couple and you feel anxious, I think the assumption we make is, oh, I'll be really not anxious and that'll help calm you down. But if you ask people 
who are anxious, how they feel when other people get super not, it infuriates them. It doesn't make them feel less anxious. It makes them feel more anxious. And then counterintuitively, usually when you join somebody and you say, you know, let's say that the woman in a relationship says, I'm really worried about our son. His grades are going down. He seems kind of listless. I don't see as many friends. And the husband or partner says, yeah, I'm worried about him too. The woman's anxiety will go down immediately when she feels the company that's like, first of all, I'm not crazy. You know, he's worried about the same thing I'm. I think that's what helps people feel less anxious when they have someone to share it with. And even if you don't feel anxious, you can still say, tell me more. Yeah, exactly. Be open to the feeling. I always wanted to have a bumper sticker that made, that said something to the effect of life's tough. Fortunately, talking about it helps. I mean, think Mm. about however we got to be the way we are, whether you have a religious answer for that or a scientific answer, it's a pretty fabulous design that when you're really upset that talking to somebody about it, and people are always surprised at how much it helps. You know, they come to a therapy session and at the end, they're like, I really feel better. And it doesn't matter how many times it happens, they're still surprised. But in fact, it does really. My next top tip is if your partner is anxious, not only tell me more, but sit with the anxiety for longer than you actually feel comfortable yourself. Because the temptation is to reach for a solution to the anxiety. And you don't want to do that for, I was going to say, a couple of hours, but perhaps I'm being too difficult. But you really have to stop yourself from reaching for a solution. I think there's a step in between which is implied in what you're saying, and I just want to articulate. So people reach for solutions because exactly of what you're saying, because they're typically the man in the relationship is feeling anxious and doesn't want to. And so reaching for a solution looks like it's to calm the woman's anxiety, but it's just as much an effort to calm. As long as she's anxious, he's fighting to not feel anxious. So the solution is just as much for him to soothe his own anxiety. It's a good point. The solution is for you too. Feel what you feel. It ain't going to hurt you. So with couples, there is an idea which is sort of sits around in the therapy world, but I don't think is really understood by the general public. And I think it'd be really useful if we can try and unpick it. And that's the idea of co-regulation. Yes, absolutely. Explain, first of all, I suppose, what regulation is, and then let's go to co-regulation. Well, let me use as an example the old social psych experiment called the still face experiments. In these experiments, they did split screen, which is what I'm looking at you and me right now, and they instructed mothers to play with their infant children. And when you look at it in a split screen, you can see that each one of them is experimenting with behaviors to get a response from the other, and they're teaching each other what works. So the baby tries out a cute expression, the mom smiles in response, and the baby learns, oh, that's a good one. That works to get mom engaged. We're doing that with each other hundreds of times a day, maybe thousands of times a day. We're always reassuring each other of our attachment. You still there? You still love me? You still like me? I'm okay with you. It happens all the time. And when you see couples who are not getting along, they're not doing that. They don't do that anymore. And you can't run an engine very long without oil. And you cannot run a relationship very long without that. So if people could actually see this video, I'm nodding along all the time because that's what we've been taught to do to encourage people. We sort of nod along. Yeah. And these kind of things 
in a couple are really important. They can be just sort of, yes, that's a good point you made there. Now, you might be thinking it, but unless you actually say it, your partner isn't going to get that. Exactly. And it's not just say it. This may sound insulting, but bear with me. I learned a lot about this from my dog trainer. When I took my dog to obedience school, she said, the mistake that everyone makes is they don't reinforce often enough and they don't give enough treats. They're cheap on the treats. So when your dog does anything remotely close to what you wanted to do, treat, 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 treat. And couples do the same thing. So you say to a couple like, well, when's the last time you told your wife that, you know, really appreciate her? I, I t- I've told her that. Like, when? Are you talking about 1964? I mean, like... <laughs> There's no toxic limit. You're the not going to run still out. together. Yeah, yeah. And so like this morning, as I do every morning, when I made my tea, I put my wife's mug out and the tea bag that she likes in the mug. I put her placemat out on the table and her napkin there. These are not, you know, difficult things to do. But I hope that when she sees them, that it's a small example that she knows I wasn't just thinking about myself. I was thinking about her and how I might make her life a little easier. Yep. I chop up a bowl of fruit for my partner. Yeah. And again, I think people tend to sort of drop off doing those things or think I did a little and that's enough, but why wouldn't you do more? Surely you like getting more. You know, the best way to get a behavior from someone is to give it to them. The most effective way, if you want someone to be more considerate of you, be more considerate of them, and they are likely to start being more considerate of you, and then it kind of builds. So what can we do to co-regulate when it comes to anxiety? I think for heterosexual relationships, and if we are talking about anxiety in particular, it typically involves the man being more comfortable with his own anxiety. And I think that often involves men talking with other men with whom they are more likely to be more comfortable exploring their emotional lives and learning to be more comfortable with their own feelings and then learning how to do that with a female partner, which is why I do therapy groups for men only. That's a big one. Big surprise to me. And I'm not discounting that. I'm just wondering if there are, I mean, because that's a sort of a long-term project really, isn't it, for men to actually speak to your friends and actually say, I'm anxious about this, but don't please give me solutions. Just can we just talk about it together? Yeah. Or it might start with, as your friend talks to you about something that is clearly anxiety, but he's not naming it, you might say, Sounds like you're anxious about that. I get anxious in the same situations. You might introduce emotional language into the conversation and see if you can move the conversation in a more personal direction than a problem-solving direction by taking the lead in it, not asking someone else to. And if you're in a relationship with a woman and you're a man, is there a way of actually being open with your anxiety without actually seeming like you're passing the parcel to your wife? The most incentive or the thing I find most effective for men who are typically pretty resistant to the idea because they've been socialized to not let their partner know they're anxious is to tell them, particularly if the couple is with me together and the man is a little more open emotionally I will tell them immediately, look at your wife, what do you see? And what you will see is affection, 
warmth, closeness. And I may even say something to the man like, I think you're going to get lucky tonight. She is feeling very close to you right now. This is, you know, as a very wise person said to me once, what men don't understand is that foreplay begins when you wake up in the morning. This is foreplay, buddy. This kind of emotional connection for women is foreplay. And that's usually pretty effective. And what about what can women do to improve co-regulation so they're not left holding the hot potato? I think the single most important thing women can do is to understand that men are anxious too and to stop being fooled into believing that they're not. And I think the second thing is going to get me in a little bit of hot water, but the book I'm working on now is a book about what women learn from their mothers about men. Not just in what, see, you started smiling. And that's what happens every time I bring this up. What's fascinating to me is I've probably spoken to a hundred women about this. Maybe 98 times I get the same reaction. The first reaction is blank, like they've never thought about that question, which is in itself astounding. But then they know the answers immediately. They're just right there below the surface. And sadly, the most typical answers that women give are my mom taught me to not trust men, not rely on men, and not expect to be close with men. And so for women, in terms of emotional regulation, is to really take a hard look at what's your history? What have you learned about men? And what expectations are you carrying into your relationship that become self-fulfilling prophecies? That your, your partner is rising to the level of your expectations, which is not so high. That's a really good one. I love that. Think about what you learned from your mother about men. And these might not be things she actually said. Exactly. Much more likely to be modeled. Yeah. How she treated your father or whoever the significant man in the house was. And if there are women listening who are interested in being interviewed for that book on that topic, they can reach me through my website, which I assume you'll send people, and I will schedule a time to talk with you about it. Brilliant. We'll put it in the show notes for the website. Now, when it comes to anxiety, people find attachment theory very useful. So we have anxious attachment and avoidant attachment. And the sort of the combination, the classic combination is anxious woman and avoidant man. Though I have seen just as many avoidant women and anxious men. How can attachment theory help us with this game? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. The Gottmans claim, I believe 70% of couple, I may have the number wrong, but it's a big number. 70% of couples conflict is due to exactly what you said, avoidantly attached men partnered with anxiously, but doesn't really make any sense because the distribution for anxious, there's no gender disparity in avoidantly attached people and anxiously. So how would, they're sort of saying that all the avoidantly attached men find all the anxiously, it doesn't make sense. It mathematically doesn't make sense. But I do think there's a way to understand it, which is that being partnered to an avoidantly attached person makes you look more anxious. And being partnered to an anxiously attached person makes you look more avoidant. So I don't think these are couples. I think these are couples who look avoidantly and anxiously attached, but I think they made each other that way. 
I don't think that is their actual characterological style. I think when somebody withdraws, you get more anxious. And somebody gets more anxious, you may withdraw more. And so that's why it looked that way to the Gottmans. But I know this is heresy. I think they misunderstood what was going on. Yes. I mean, I've been in two long-term relationships and I have swapped around the two yeah. positions. I mean, I, I like to think I'm more securely attached these days, but I mean, personally, I think that it's a lot to do with the dynamic as well, rather than yeah. it being set in stone. And what you described is what some of us would say is the hallmark of a healthy relationship, which is the opposite of polarization. What you said is sometimes I'm in this role, and sometimes I'm in that role. And I think that's as good as it gets, is when each person has the capacity to be in different roles so that nobody gets stuck in one role. So what advice, if you're in the anxious phase, or you're in the anxious place, I'm sorry, rather than phase, and then the temptation is to pursue, what advice would you give? The problem with pursuing is that it usually causes your partner to detach further. And it's usually more effective if you stop pursuing. It is likely then that your partner will begin moving closer, not moving much far away. Again, going back to the Gottmans, the Gottmans claim that they can predict with a high degree of accuracy what they call a slow startup. They can watch the first, I think it's three minutes of an argument and predict with like 95% accuracy whether that's going to be a productive argument or not. And it all has to do with how fast it escalates. When people take their time and they don't jump at somebody, if somebody jumps at you, you jump back. If you move in slowly, making your positive intent very clear, you give the other person to sort of match your temperature, and then it's more likely you'll move forward together. So first one is move slowly, and that probably means don't swallow three or four other arguments because you've got those behind you ready to leap in. And if it does go badly, you've got to sort of wait twice as long as you currently do to try and patch things up or get some reassurance or whatever. Yeah. It's a difficult, challenging concept, but it's worth chewing on. There's a principle in Jewish ethics, which is that you are responsible for the impact of all of your words. Whether you meant it or not, doesn't let you off the hook. That is a beautiful idea. Can you please repeat that again? Because that is just wonderful. It's a principle of Jewish ethics that you are responsible for how your words land on other people, whether it's what you meant or not. And obviously, it's an aspirational idea. It's not, I don't think it's literally possible to anticipate a no, but I'll tell you, at my age, what I'm learning is I have had some issues recently where I have waited two and three months to talk actually with my wife and with a dear friend just last night. And what I'm waiting for, I'm not waiting to find the courage to talk about it. I'm waiting to find a way to talk about it that I'm confident will go well. And in both those cases, by the time I didn't even actually bring it up, it just sort of came up and was easily resolved because I had waited. I didn't just impulsively blurt out my hurt feelings. I sat with it until I could talk about it in a way that I was pretty confident would go well. And it was almost effortless at that point. It's interesting. I've also been trying to do that as well. The thing that I say to myself is, watch and wait. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes you have to wait quite a long time. I mean, I had a 
recent experience. And I think I've probably waited six months or so. Yeah. I mean, I had tried a few times beforehand and it all went pear-shaped. I mean, I didn't get everything I wanted, but the conversation at least went well. I got heard. Yes. And it's important to differentiate that from the, you know, sitting and holding a grudge and steaming for three months. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about during that time, you're trying to work through to a place where you can talk about it in a respectful and loving way, not in an angry and critical way. And I think we should do the other half if you're the person who retreats and is given the name avoidant. And I think that's a little bit too harsh because it's not avoidant of everything. It's just right. the avoidant of the moment. It really helps if you can speak to what's going on. You know, I'm feeling overwhelmed. I need a 10-minute yeah. break and then we can come back to it. You will nearly always get your 10-minute break. Absolutely. And I'll add one small thing. I think the person who asked for that 10-minute break then has to take responsibility for reinitiating. Yeah, I would entirely agree with that. I mean, the other thing I see, which is sort of along these lines, is you often get a situation where one party is depressed and the other is anxious. Yes. Do you see that too? Yeah, although we're now really in sticky wicket. Um, mm. we, we don't come here to discuss the easy things. Okay. I will start by saying that probably somewhere in the range of three quarters of people who I see who self-label themselves as depressed, we end up both agreeing that they are not depressed. My shorthand for depression is emotional constipation. I call it suppression rather than depression, but it's the yes. same thing. No, I think you're, we're on the same page exactly. What most people call depression is emotional diarrhea. They're having trouble modulating their feelings. Other people are not happy with their open expression of emotions because it's making them feel more. And so there is a concerted effort around them to disapprove of what they're feeling, which they then call depression. So when you talk about anxious and depressed, I think what gets called depression is often emotional suppression in the face of anxiety. So most often in heterosexual couples, it is the woman who is the one who looks anxious and men try to damp down all the emotional content in order to soothe themselves from what they feel in response to their partner's anxiety. So what we're sort of saying, and this is really difficult, is you have to be responsible for your own emotions, but you also have to be aware that your emotions, again, have an impact on your partner as well. And that's a really difficult to hold both of those things at the same time. Yes, I think it's even a little more complicated, which is that we elicit feelings in each other. So I value my relationship with my wife because the parts of me that tend to come forward when I'm with her, and I value her most highly because those are parts of myself which are very precious to me and don't often come forward. They're very important and kind of rare parts of me that mostly come forward with her. And so I am responsible for how I feel, but I mostly feel that way in the context of my relationship with her. So when I say I don't like somebody, I'm saying I don't like the way I feel when I'm with them. 
And I can blame myself and I can blame them. But what I'm really talking about is it, it doesn't work very well for me. Our relationship does not work very well. It doesn't mean you're a bad person because your relationship with lots of other people might work perfectly fine for you. But when I'm with you, it makes me feel this way and I don't really like that. So in a moment, we're going to be looking at a letter which is sort of going to help us talk further on these themes. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. If you'd like to participate in the program, you can go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts. And there you can find details of how to sign up for our newsletter, get information about all my guests. And I send out every two weeks an article on a particular subject that I think you'll find useful. And there's a section in there where you can actually write a letter in that I will discuss with one of my wise friends. And this is the letter that I've chosen to share with Avram. I sometimes think my wife has contempt for me. Perhaps that's too strong, but she certainly doesn't trust me to make what she considers the right decisions for our baby. Have I put him in the right clothes? Will he be too warm or too cold? Will I put him down at the right time so he's not too crabby or will not sleep when it's bedtime? Am I buying the right sort of food for him? When I defend myself, How can I second-guess her? She tells me that I'm being stupid. Isn't it obvious? What should she have to tell me? Why does she have to check everything I do? So I find myself on edge dealing with the baby, and when I just relax and play with him, I'm criticised for not noticing all the household chores that need doing. Not surprisingly, I lose my temper and we have a row, a nasty row. We'll have a period of keeping the peace, but all the criticism is still there, fuel for the next fire. How can I deal with her contempt? Because if I did somehow manage to remember to do the things as she likes, there'll just be something else to complain about. Well, it's a very honest letter. Yes, it is. Do you recognize this couple? Painfully. I mean, this is why I started work on the new book about what women learn about men. This is so familiar to me. And so the first thing I want to say to your listener is you are not alone. And if you talk to some of your male friends you will find out how common this is. But unusually, I actually have a solution. Oh, brilliant. It's pretty rare that therapists offer solutions. But I have suggested this to dozens of couples, and it almost always works. Please invite your wife to go away for at least three days without you. (laughs) And here are the ground rules. She is not to arrange for any help for you whatsoever while she is gone. She is not to prepare meals in advance. She is not to have her mother stop in and check on you. She is not to arrange play dates with other children. She is not to leave instructions. She is just to go and turn her cell phone off or not take any calls from you and be gone for at least three days. And how many people do you manage to convince to do that? Less than half actually do it, (laughs) but of those who do it, I would say 90 plus percent, it makes a significant change in the dynamic that your listener is talking about because men 
find their own ability. They find their own competence is the word I was looking for. They don't know how to do these things because, excuse me, but they've never done them unsupervised. When their wife leaves or their partner or whoever it is, they have to figure out what the kids eat. They have to figure out when the kid needs a nap. They have to figure out how to get them to the front. They have to figure all that stuff out. And a lot of things happen from that. One is they have a never again, a man who has done that will never again be stupid enough to say, my job's a lot harder than yours. Men who spend three days home alone with their children will get down on their knees when their wife gets back and says, I'm sorry I haven't appreciated how hard you work. Oh my God, how do you do this every... So one thing is that men really get a firsthand feel for what it's like. But the learning on for women is just as dramatic, which is they come back, the kids aren't dead, the house isn't burned down, you know, things aren't where they belong and it's not as cleanish, but everything is fine. And she sees a connection. I'm, I'm almost tearing up saying this. She sees a connection between the father and the kids that she has yearned for from the moment they were born and not known how. She's tried to legislate it and micromanage it, but if she would just get the hell out of the way, they would figure it out. So she comes back and they're laughing and they're playing and they have their own little secret games. And the first night she's back, he says, I've got bedtime because he wants to put them down because he's enjoying putting them down. And now you've got two parents in the home, which by the way, is the solution for men being afraid of women, is being raised in a home with two parents. So wonderful things happen from this experiment. And most of the people who do the experiment, the men want to repeat it. It's not just the women who say, I'd like to go away again. The men are like, it's been a minute. When are you, when are you and your friends going away again? And can the women actually not send any texts or make any calls? It's not easy, but it helps you if you go away with friends who say to you, it's going to be okay, you know, don't call. I mean, what women report to me is I want an equal partner on bringing up the children. And yet at the same time, they also want to be in charge. And exactly. that's not equality. I know, but it's what they watch their mothers do. And I'm not critical of women about this. It's what they watch their mother do. And so it's an impossible situation. But this experiment, especially if repeated, I loved it when my wife went away for weekends. I loved having the kids. What I say to new dads is, you need to be the one to get up in the middle of the night with the kids. Well, I have to get up in the morning. I'm like, I don't care. Middle of the night is the only unsupervised time you will have with your child. That's when you will bond with your kids. You didn't carry him in your womb. You didn't breastfeed him. This is your time to make up ground, is the middle of the night. I've done a, a sort of a, a less immersive sort of one where they play a game called Who's in Charge of the Baby? And a lot of the conflict happens because it's actually not clear who's in charge of the right. baby. And I mean, you don't have to hold a stick to say I'm in charge of the baby and you pass the right. stick backwards and forwards, but there is a, a sort of like a, it's like a game of tag. Yeah. You, only one person can be it at a time. And, you know, who's in charge? I'm in charge. Let me get on with it. You know, even if the child is crying, you know, I'm in charge. I will sort it out. I think that's a great game to play after this weekend. I think if mm. you play that game before the weekend, the man will never really be in charge. The woman will be watching. 
making suggestions, <laughs> handing him things. She'll still be the judge in the game as well. And men feel it. You know, men are aware that they're being watched. And so they don't find their own competence. You know, it's like an audition. You don't do your best work when somebody's looking over your shoulder. The best thing about the weekend is you have to figure it out. And they do. I have never once had this happen and it blow up, you know, like they had to call the police. <laughs> they had to call Child <laughs> Protective Services. Like, they figure it out. It's not rocket science. Yeah. And, you know, if there's a couple of mistakes made, it doesn't really matter. Well, and do mistakes by whose definition, you know? Well, you know, in the sense that those tears before bedtime sort of stuff. But is that a mistake or has the mom been having difficulty setting limits around bedtime and what's been missing is a little bit of firmness in the conversation, which dad is now bringing to the conversation, which of course is going to bring some tears for the kid, but maybe that's what's been needed. So I'm not sure that's a mistake. It may be a balancing. Yeah, we could just call it a learning opportunity. Exactly. I think kids benefit from having two parents of whatever gender, but I think kids benefit from having two points of view, two different people with two different personalities. Yep. And nearly always, if we can find a middle way between the two personalities, everybody benefits. And I think kids integrate both. You know, they take one from column A, one from B, they learn from both. I mean, it's, I mean, uh, living in uh, Germany, it's amazing. Most of my couples are from two different backgrounds, speaking two different languages, and the kids have no problem speaking two languages. So there's no problem with them learning two different ways of doing things. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we've almost run out of time. It's just amazing how quickly time goes yeah. by. I normally ask people at the end of the interview what makes their life meaningful. But as I've already asked you that question, I have a slightly different variation on it to ask okay. you. And that is, what is trying to come into the world through me? I don't know if you've ever had that question before. It's a question that James Hollis, who's a Jungian analyst, asks people. And I think it's a really wonderful question. So what is trying to come into the world through you? I like your question a lot because when people try to credit me for the ideas I'm talking about, I get very uncomfortable with that. I don't think I thought of any of this. I think that I'm a good observer and synthesizer of things that do come through me. And I think I'm just a channeler in a sense of these ideas. And I think the idea that's coming through me is that we have to pay attention to men, that we can't just ignore men, that we can't just criticize men, we can't just pathologize men. The analogy I've been using in talking to groups lately is because, there, you know, there's a big debate in feminism right now about whether feminists, whether women should be concerned about men. And there are actually a substantial position of no, they shouldn't be. And my response is men and women are in the same boat. And the boat is sinking and we're at risk of dying. So you can argue correctly that men designed the boat, built the boat and maintained the boat and privileged are privileged most and benefit most from the boat. And meanwhile, we're both dying. So you're going to be right and dead. Or we can stop arguing about who built the boat and figure out how to not drown together. That's a very provocative and very interesting way of putting it. So thank you for that. You're the welcome. conversation doesn't stop here. 
if you are a supporter of The Meaningful Life, we're going to be talking about what is your relationship with change? Because uh, this whole program really has been about trying to change. And we all think we're up for change, but are we? So that's what we're going to be talking about. If you'd like to hear the bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. And if you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and unlock the bonus material, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.